episode 94, David Meyer, founder of Glens Creek Distillery. Something that's hard for, for people to do sometimes, to admit that they're human uh, and, and that they can make mistakes. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For links, show notes, and more, go to markgraven.com slash mistake94. Please follow, rate, and review. If you like the episode, please share it with somebody. Share it with your colleagues and connections on social media. Thanks. And we're joined today by David Meyer. Uh, David's a friend of mine. We've known each other for, what, maybe 15 years or so when we crossed yeah, paths? Probably, yeah. Yeah, so we've crossed paths in working uh, work circles, um, in what I would call my day job, maybe your your previous job, or or would you still call that type of work that we've done the day job, or is that behind you now? No, I still do a bit of the consulting when things come along. So let me give a little bit more formal introduction to uh, to, to David Meyer. Um, we crossed paths after he had a, a very interesting career at Toyota. Um, he has then worked as a, a consultant doing similar types of work uh, to, to what I do. And he's also co-author of uh, two really excellent books. One is called The Toyota Way Field Book, and the other one is called Toyota Talent. And more recently, and this is of uh, you know particular interest of mine, um, David has started, he's the founder of Glens Creek Distillery in Kentucky. And I've had a chance to visit the distillery twice, and I enjoy um, his his products very much. And I'm going to give um, uh, congratulations and a shout out to you that um, David has gotten um, really nice acclaim in uh, the Jim Murray 2021 Whiskey Bible. So David, congratulations uh, for, for that recognition. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I, I just actually saw that uh, recently myself. So that was nice. And uh, Mr. Murray visited the distillery a couple of years ago. So it's kind of a good experience. Yeah, so we'll, we'll come back and um, you know talk a little bit more about the distillery and the whiskey. But I think we're going to talk first about your experiences at Toyota. And you know, regular listeners will realize we're going to deviate from the standard a little bit here. Normally, we jump right into the favorite mistake question, but but David's going to first tell us a little bit more um, about some of the background of what he learned working at Toyota. Yeah, you know, when I first saw your uh, blog and. Uh, really, really appreciate the idea of being able to talk about mistakes because it's, uh, it's something that's hard for, for people to do sometimes to admit that they're human uh, and, and that they can make mistakes. And, you know, when I started at Toyota, I was, I was 27 and I was put into a, a leadership role there and I'd had some leadership experience in the past, but, but certainly not, not very much. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I found frustrating and kind of made me angry was that when my people would make mistakes, you know, the, the blame, it felt like, you know, came down on me and, um, you know, Toyota operates a, a no fault, no blame culture. Um, but 
we are brought up, you know, you listen to any two-year-old kid and, and they say, it's not my fault. He did it. And, you know, we're, we're, we're brought up with this idea of, uh, you know, find fault and, and place blame. And, and, uh, and there's a difference between that and being responsible. You know, Toyota teaches that the leader's responsibility is to, to uh, develop and create uh, processes and systems that allow people to do their best work. And, um, but, but certainly it was hard for me in the beginning, um, with that situation. And, and as time went on, I, I got to understand the difference between, you know, responsibility for something and, and fault or blame about something. And, um, certainly, certainly when you, when you make a mistake, uh, you, you have the responsibility for that uh, mistake and, uh, and it's expected at Toyota then that you're also going to propose, you know, some corrective action or something to help prevent that mistake from occurring again. Yeah. So there's learning that takes place then. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I used to, when, when one of my people would make a mistake, you know, I would, uh, I'd go out to the process area and I'd look at the situation and, and, uh, Honestly, I, I think sometimes, well, how, how stupid can, could they be that they don't understand the correct way to do this? And it, it took me a while, uh, a couple of years, actually, to to be able to kind of clear my brain of any forethoughts about the situation and then look at it from a, a, a novice's point of view, if you will, and say, OK, if I didn't understand this system and since i was the one who designed it it clearly i understood it and if i didn't have that understanding is it actually that clear to others and uh, you know of course the answer is no not really and so you have to understand that that uh, you know when people make mistakes uh, it's not intentional and it's called a mistake right and um so so, you know, that, that really, uh, changed for me. And, you know, at the distillery now, when, when we have a new hire or something, I just tell him, I said, look, you can't really make a mistake that hasn't been made here already. You know, <laughs> yeah. we've, we've done this, we've screwed up that, you know, we've, we've done this kind of thing. And so you're not gonna, uh, you're not going to come up with something, uh, new. Now, every now and then they surprise me and come up with something <laughs> that hasn't happened, but yeah. you know, everybody goes through this kind of a similar um, learning process and, and, uh, you know, c- certain things happen. He's, you know, Hey, uh, we don't want to, we don't want to let any distillate go on the floor, but sometimes it does. And that's sad. So um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit, David, um, you know, cause you, know, you hear things like, um, there's variations on these expressions, be hard on the process, not on the people. And this idea of not blaming the frontline workers, um, at what point is a frontline supervisor, a frontline leader, um, responsible versus also being part of the system? Yeah, that's that. That's exactly what I was struggling with. You know, initially is the idea that you have responsibility for process improvement or or developing people, um, and um, you know it, it's. It's one of those things where um, 
I don't know. It, it takes a while because the way we're brought up, I mean, we're brought up with this mindset and, and all of a sudden you're placed in this different situation. And uh, when you're being sort of scolded in a way for what occurred, um, but not blamed. I mean, it's, it's a strange thing to adapt to really. And uh, it's just clear that, okay, you have a responsibility and responsibility, your responsibility is to ensure these things and to, to do these things and to follow through on these things. And uh, that's not a criticism per se. That's an expectation, right? And, and another thing, you know, Toyota has, has the process or, you know, out there we have error proofing or mistake proofing, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, I, I always tell people, I said, there, there's no such thing. I, I listened to your podcast about almost losing those, those uh, uh, podcast recordings. And um, you, you talked about, you know, backup and so on and so on. And, and at one point you, you kind of said it's virtually fail safe or something to that effect. And I would say, no. Nothing is, and you you can acknowledge that you're going to get a solid state drive, and it's certainly more robust than a than a spinny drive. But there there is no there is no actual error proofing, right? In problem solving, Toyota uses the word countermeasure. You use that word countermeasure, and if you understand that term, it, it it's it has to be deployed continuously in order to be effective. And, and I always tell people, I said, look, for every system that you put in place, okay, if a human puts a system in place, another human can work around that system or bypass that system or shortcut that system, right? So the idea of error-proofing isn't really to eliminate the error. It's to make it more difficult to make a mistake. It's not, it's not possible to totally eliminate uh, yeah. mistake. So you might use a term like error mitigation instead yeah. of yeah, yeah. proofing. That sounds very absolute. Maybe, you know, there are simple cases where you can absolutely error-proof something. Well, I, I, I would beg to differ on that because you can always <laughs> bypass something, right? Yeah. Yeah. If, it's, if it's possible for a human to invent it, it's possible for a human to circumvent it. So, um, yeah, yeah, mitigation is probably a better term. And so, uh, you know, with that in mind, we have to – we do have to acknowledge that mistakes are sort of inevitable, but you can apply certain thinking to minimize them in some way. Some, in some cases, it's not possible to, to, to apply something or certainly not easy to apply something. Well, and you talk about, you use the word responsibility, a different ability word that comes to mind. I hear this way too often uh, in healthcare. It's not exclusively a healthcare thing, but it's really common in healthcare the word accountability yeah. gets thrown around and gets weaponized. Well, we're going to hold people accountable, which is a polite way of saying we're going to blame them and we're going to punish them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, was part of the difference at Toyota that scolding or what felt like blaming was the punishment replaced with learning and improvement? Right. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And, and that's a point that I often make. It's a, they, they want to make accountability this way, right? Right you need to be accountable. And I say, no, accountability goes this way, right? You need to, I need to be accountable. Can you help me be accountable? We're in this together. And if I uh, uh, agree that I'm going to 
live a certain way or behave a certain way, and you uh, experience me not behaving that way, then you you help me be accountable. Right? So so it's it's I think I, I agree with you. Kind of weaponizing it the, between the words means yes, we're, we're gonna. And here, fill out this paper to agree that you understand this situation so that if you fail to do this, then we can punish you and get what you deserve. Yeah. And and the word accountability, I mean, going back to the root words, and I mean it means basically to give account, which is about explaining. Right. Which is different than I think a notion of responsibility. And like, you know, that root of accountability doesn't Really, it wasn't meant to imply blame and punishment. Right. You can explain what happened. That's a healthy thing to figure out, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, and you know, so you mentioned the episode where I almost lost, where we talked about Jamie Parker interviewed me about the episodes I almost lost. That was episode sixteen. Right. Uh, for people who want to go back and, and listen to that, but um, David, you mentioned the episode with Mister um, Yoshino. Um, Katie Anderson and uh, Mr. Yoshino, that was, my gosh, that was episode 30. Let me double check that so I don't well, make recent. I think it was, it was one of your more recent ones. It, it was recent. It, yeah, it was episode 30 for people who want to go back. Mr. Yoshino told a story about being very young early in his career at Toyota, and he made a mistake. You could call it a slip up. He basically grabbed the wrong container of something in the paint area and it caused a problem. And, you know, it sounds like that, that error was too easy to make. So, you know, what was your reaction to that story and some of that? Well, line that that, that's, that's exactly when, when I decided to reach out to you because my mistake is very similar to that one. Um, and uh, I, I related to it quite well when he started talking about that. I said, Oh yeah. Uh huh. Been there, done that. Um, so I think I'll just I'll just launch into it uh, for you. And you know, the the first thing is this wasn't really my mistake. And one of the things I try to explain to people is that at, at Toyota, or, or or just like your explanation of Swiss cheese, okay. A lot of things have to line up sometimes for for the quote mistake to actually occur, right? And and all those things, if 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 all of them don't line up, then the mistake didn't happen. But you you maybe had a near miss, as you sort of described. Um, and this this is really one of those cases. So uh, this was about I think four to five years into my uh, Toyota experience. So so we weren't exactly newbies at that point. Um, and uh, in one one morning, the, my team leader came up to me, and I could see just kind of like white faced. Something wasn't right. And he says, uh, "You know, the bumper core process uh, is powder." And I'm just looking at him and thinking, what does that to myself, mean? "Powder. This is this is supposed to be." Uh, the energy absorber, they called it in the vehicles back then, it was a polyurethane uh, hard uh, foam piece. I mean, not powder, right? Not. And so, so I walked over there with him and, and take a look at the situation. And, and it's like, you know, sometimes you experience something that is so far beyond your uh, realm of experience that you just can't process it. I mean, there's, there would be nothing. 
like this, the typical defects that we experience, you know, that you deal with kind of day in and day out. Uh, this was so far out of that realm that it just, you know, totally blank. So, so at, at Toyota, you, you understand some things. And one of those things is you have about an hour's worth of work and process inventory between you and the next process and that case bumper paint. And bumper paint has about an hour's worth of inventory between them and the assembly line. So you got about two hours before everything stops. Uh, so that's that's number one. So so you immediately call the managers and maintenance and the engineers and everybody to, to come down to the to the problem area. And um, and, and again, you know, in, in retrospect and looking back on it, I think uh, sometimes you, you're experiencing something again that's so far beyond the realm of of your possibilities that you just don't know what to do. But, you know, everybody puts their heads together and says, OK, let's let's take this action We're, we'll drain the chemical system and we'll refill the system and we'll start from scratch and, and we'll see how it goes. So, you know, this process alone to, to drain the system, you're talking an hour or so. We've never done it before. It's, it, it's never had to happen. So we don't really know. And then you got to fill it up and then the chemicals have to blend and so on and so on. So, so, you know, you're, you're two, three hours into this thing before you can even have an effective chance at a countermeasure. And, and to make matters worse, once you, once you pour these parts into the mold, it goes through a heating cycle that takes about 11 minutes. And I would say it's, it's like when the astronauts go to the other side of the moon, (laughs) you're waiting, right? You're sitting there waiting, hoping and praying that these Parts are going to be okay after all this all this work, and and the mold comes around, opens up, and powder again. I mean, just crumbly powder. So uh, we're all scratching heads, and you, and you have to understand one thing here, Mark. In addition to those of us who had been with Toyota four years, we had a lot of seasoned Toyota veterans from Japan working with us at that point in time. I mean, 20, 30 year guys. Okay. Um, and, and nobody had experienced anything like this. And, and it was, you know, so the decision was made this time and maybe the automated system was messed up somehow and it wasn't putting in the right material and so on and so on. And so let's drain it all down and then we'll refill it manually, which again, it never actually been done. So we got to get the manual out and figure out how to actually make that happen. So, you know, several more hours goes by and um, it, this this happened to me more than one one occasion at Toyota where, where the process really was down for quite a long time. And, you know, it's kind of I, I'd say you look up and all of a sudden there's 25 people from all over the plant, every <laughs> manager from every department comes because they all want to know, you know, what are we going to do with our people? What should you know, how long might this take? And everybody kind of comes together. Uh, and so I say you have 25 new friends that you didn't know about <laughs> yeah. before. Um, so anyway, go through this whole process of redoing it all manually and, and same thing, you know, put it in the mold, goes around the oven, 11 minutes, you're waiting, waiting. And then uh, you know, mold opens up powder. Yeah. Yuck. Okay. Yeah. So now we're, I don't know, six hours into this, seven hours into this. And, and everybody understands when you, when the line stops, it's everybody understands the significance of that. Right. Uh, and, and everybody's doing their best to try to, to get, get it resolved. So 
at that point, you know, people are kind of wandering around and looking and trying to think what else could it be? What else could it be? And, uh, off to the side is my recollection is off to the side. I hear somebody saying, what, what do you do with methylene chloride? Hmm. My ears perk up. Right. Hmm. And I'm like, do what now? Now I was familiar with methylene chloride because of my previous job. I worked as a safety coordinator and I had to deal hmm. with the chemicals and so forth. But we had no use for those in the plastics department. Ah. Right. There's, yeah. there's no methylene chloride was needed anywhere that we did. So I, I immediately went over to where he was. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, this drum here says methylene chloride on it. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, my gosh, we're putting a solvent in where we were supposed to be putting a catalyst in. Yeah. Okay. So instead of solidifying the material, it was degrading the material. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so when you, you know, when you analyze that at the end and we had to do an analysis and we had to do a problem solving and Mr. Cho, our president basically asked one question what did we learn today? Mm. And uh, the, the thing about it is Mark, the, the mistakes, the mistakes that led to the line stop, the downtime, weren't actually the big mistake. The, the big mistake, which took me about 10 years of reflection to, to understand, was what took us so long to figure out what caused the issue. Mm-hmm. See, it was seven hours in and we missed, uh, we missed one of the most fundamental lessons when a problem occurs or when a mistake happens one of the fundamental lessons which which we had been taught over and over and over at toyota right now to analyze the mistake what happened well you could do a five whys and say well somebody put the wrong material in the system why because the wrong material was delivered and why because it was in the wrong location you know who knows it could have been it could have been a mistake on the uh, shipping and bill of lading or where they stored it at oil stores. The drum was the same color, the same size and the same manufacturer. Yeah. So, so we know things like expectation bias get in the way, right? Mm-hmm. We, the, it looks normal. This, this sounds like some medication errors. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same, same kind of thing, right? It looks normal. It doesn't look out of place. And, and so we literally walked by it all day long and failed. And again, it took me a long time to really understand where we failed. And the thing about it is Mark, in that case, all of us there failed in the same way. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm not talking two or three people. I'm talking 20 people, 25 people. Okay. Very experienced people who, you know, should know better. And the failure was we didn't verify the standard. We didn't, nobody thought to say, hey, let's go and check all the chemicals that we're putting in the system, or hey, let's switch them all out and put a fresh batch in. Right? The, 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 this, the feeling we got latched into, and this happens, happens a lot too, uh, where you, you latch into one possibility and it must be the blending system. It wasn't about what we put in the system. It was about the system itself. I mean, that seems like that's a form of cognitive bias. I've I've heard others talk about um, the first solution that people come up with 
we tend to lock in or gravitate too strongly toward that one. Even if we're trying to brainstorm multiple possibilities, I think our brain tends to stick with uh, the first one, which, um, yeah, that's at our own risk, I guess. Yeah, it, it is. It's extremely common. And, um, you know, particularly, I think, in, again, in that scenario where we were faced with a situation that was so far beyond anything that we could imagine as, as a cause. And, you know, with your everyday defects or everyday situations that you've kind of dealt with before, and you kind of go back to uh, what you know, in this case, it was, it was, you know, too far out there. And I think, um, you know, as I recall, there was a, you know, there was a a list drawn out about what, you know, what could be going on and and so forth. But, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the blending system was focused on and we didn't we didn't go and look and see what all the materials were were they the correct materials i mean that's a fundamental thing step number one is confirm uh, that what you're dealing with is what it's supposed to be but there might have been a bias or an assumption where people might have thought such a fundamental error like that wasn't going to happen it must be something really complicated instead of being something really simple. Well, yeah, that's a possibility as well. And, and again, you know, looking visually, I mean, literally looking, uh, that drum was the same color, the same size, the same manufacturer, you know, from several feet away, it didn't look out of place. It didn't look abnormal. It didn't look like something was wrong. And, uh, but still, you know, the 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 idea when I when I it finally occurred to me that uh, we all fundamentally failed to do the most basic thing, which is confirm. And um, you know, expectation bias or confirmation bias. You're absolutely right. Those are those are things that often get in our way when we're trying to resolve a situation or we're trying to um, or avoid mistakes. I mean, a lot of mistakes um, in healthcare. It's common. Uh, expectation bias says, oh, I'm working with Mark and Mark's a really good guy and I trust Mark. So I don't need to double check Mark on what Mark did because he's a good guy. And uh, so so it's a very common uh, phenomenon, I think, in in the realm of making mistakes. Yeah. So you mentioned it took quite a long time for this to really kind of um, come together in your mind. What what triggered that learning or that that recognition of like for one, the memory of that, and then the recognition of um, the mistake within trying to figure out the mistake. Well, you know, the, the what I call the bigger mistake, because um, if we had done, if we had checked and confirmed things, we could have resolved it within the first effort and drain the system because clearly it had contamination in it, uh, refill it with the correct things and and probably be back to normal uh, much, much sooner, hours, hours and hours sooner. Um, and um, I think, you know, back then, certainly I was not as experienced as I am now or, or became later when I finally understood it. Uh, you know, we sat down and we did what people do with problem solving. Well, why did the wrong material end up in the in that place? And what mistake was that? And what can we do to, to make sure that mistake doesn't happen again? And I, I don't think anybody ever asked the question to say, uh, 
but I learned this later is to say, how can we resolve problems more quickly? How can we get to uh, effective countermeasures uh, faster so that we don't experience the length of downtime? We focused on how, you know, the, the mistake, which was putting the wrong chemical in the wrong place. Well, and, and many organizations would have gone down the path of who put the wrong chemical into yep. the machine and uh, might go down that path of, well, we're going to write them up or punish them or, you know, right. uh, and, 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 and that doesn't, I, you know, it's, that's not as effective of a path to learning and improvement and, and ultimately right. success for the team or the plant or the company. Right. We, we did not have a process in place that said to the operator, verify the chemical before you stick the hose in it. Right. And that was one of the corrective actions that, that took place. Um, and, and I think to make matters worse, that the individual who actually did it was a temporary. Mm-hmm. Okay. Summer, it, it was summertime and we would hire uh, children of workers from college or whatever to come and, and fill some jobs in the summer. Um, but, but look, it, it was the Swiss cheese. It wasn't it wasn't the final act of putting it in certainly it was also the delivery of the wrong thing and it was also the pickup of the wrong thing and and who, who knows how far back the the series of mistakes actually went yeah yeah but then like you were saying earlier um uh you know error mitigation or it might be very imperfect or people can work around a system or you know if if, if it's dependent on someone double checking the chemical they might forget or you know, there, there might be distracted or there might, might be, be some other um, human factor that um, that gets in the way. Well, yeah. And and just like in any good system, like an aerospace or whatever, the more critical it is, the more redundancies you, you want to have. And, and we had multiple redundancies and they went back all the way to oil stores, which is where the chemicals were received in the, in the plant and then delivered to us. And person who said it there had to had to confirm it the person who was to put it in the machine had to confirm it and so uh, you know and, and I believe I, if I recall we actually got the supplier to change the color of the drum so that it you know didn't match methylene chloride or, or whatever so I mean all of those countermeasures were were fine but you know again later I realized wait a minute why did we fail at the, at this fundamental lesson that says, when something isn't working right, go back and verify the conditions or the parameters or, or whatever. You know, ver- verify the standard uh, first thing. And if you find something that's out of standard, you put that back in standard and go from there. Um, and and it's kind of surprising, like I said, because there were so many people involved who all sort of fell into the same trap. Well, and um, you know, so I appreciate you sharing that story and and you know the broader reflections from Toyota. Um, I want to bring the conversation back to um, Glens Creek Distillery and the work that you've been doing there. And um, I'll put in the show notes. You know, David and I have done um, uh, interviews in uh, my Lean podcast series where we take a real deep dive into what he's doing there, and and I'll um, I'll point to that. But um, one thing I was going to ask, I mean, the thing that comes to mind. I don't know if this was a, a mistake or a discovery, and maybe this is urban legend, but the idea that uh, bourbon was transported down the Mississippi River and it was put into um, oak barrels for the purposes of transportation 
And then it was discovered that the time spent in the oak barrel changed the whiskey, taking it from a, you know, a clear distillate to something with more flavors and, and, and color. Um, I mean, you know, that, that could have been framed, um, whether that story is true or not exactly, you know, what, what might've been a mistake in transportation, like, well, they, they, they didn't use an inert stainless steel container if that even existed at the time, but that quote unquote mistake actually led to the creation of a lot of value through that, that learning and that discovery. Well, you know, I, I'd go way back in human history, Mark, and say that mistakes or, or things, you know, whatever you want to call it, led to a lot of uh, new things. So my guess is that humans discovered that uh, sprouted seeds fermented. And that's because this uh, sprouting of the seed releases enzymes that, that then convert starch in the seeds into fermentable sugars. And to, to discover that, you probably had sacks of grain that got wet accidentally and then uh, sprouted and, and started fermenting. And then you saw animals eating that fermented <laughs> stuff and having a great time. And you put two and two together and say, Hey, let's do this. Yeah. Um, but, but I think the story you're referring to is more urban legend. Uh, okay. I thought, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, legends like that in this industry, you know, who's the first distiller who first did this and that. In fact, uh, liquids were stored in oak containers well before uh, the United States was the United States. And if you look at it, you know, if, if you see any of these old shows or whatever, of course, you're going to see wooden barrels all over the place because that was the way everything was transported. Not only did they not have stainless steel, they didn't have plastic, they didn't have cardboard, and they didn't have any, you know, and so you had basically you had two different kinds of barrels. You had dry goods barrels that didn't have to hold liquid and you had uh, liquid type barrels. And uh, so anything liquid, wine, uh, honey, molasses, tea, molasses, or, yeah. whiskey would have been transported, you know, in a barrel. I think the, uh, the difference was barrel barrels for wine, for example, are typically toasted but not charred, and so the charring process uh, lends a lot to uh, the bourbon. It gives it a more amberish color and and uh, certainly some smoky flavors, perhaps, and, and so yeah. on. So um, that legend, of course, can't be validated either. That Elijah Craig, you know, was a tightwad and and he had a, a pickle barrel or, or, you know, sardine barrel or something that liquid. And <laughs> he wanted to reuse it. So in order to get rid of the flavor, he burned, burned the inside of it and, and uh, created good whiskey. But, you know, it's a tall tale. I think um, the French, as I understand it, were, were charring barrels and storing whiskey in barrels years before. Yeah. So, yeah. And then uh, Scottish listeners may claim some, some some right of first discovery uh to some of that but yeah yeah well i don't think they use charred barrels but you know humans humans tens of thousands of years ago the the uh, vikings had discovered that white oak was pretty good for making boats because it kept liquid out and i'm sure then people realized you could use it to keep liquid in yeah. as well yeah um maybe as a, a final question before we wrap up can you think of an example in your distillery operations where you've got some sort of 
um, a, maybe not mistake proofing, but error mitigation strategy in place? You said you've made a lot of mistakes already, but what, what sort of prevention do you try to put in place? Well, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of what we do is, is sort of manual in nature. And when you have manual things, it's a little bit more challenging to put in uh, error proofing. So hmm. what I try to do in that case is, is build, build the step into the standard work. Okay. So for example, uh, you know, when you're going to fill the still, you've had to drain the still and you certainly want to make sure that the, the valve is closed. Now we could automate that. Right. I could put uh, actuators in there and, and have all that automated, but uh, that's expensive. And, um, you know, it, it's an easy enough task, but it happens sometimes. But you learn and say, OK, uh, step number one, close the valve. And then step number two, when you get ready to turn on the pump to put something in the still, look over and double check the valve. And one of the things they taught us at Toyota is, is a. Yosh, right? Y-O-S-H-I is how it's spelled, but it's pronounced Yosh and basically means check, right? Confirm. And so when I train someone, I say, look, you're going to, I want you to point at that thing so that I understand that you're doing what you're thinking in your head. Because as you know, a lot of mistakes occur because our brains are, are sidetracked or on another thought or, you know, in certain situations, you basically fall into a hypnosis because of repetition or, you know, what happens at the distillery is what we call getting squirreled, right? You're, <laughs> you're in the midst of a task and something else, ah, right. attention, you yeah. go away from the task and then you come back and, and you miss a step, right? And so at, at the end, you know, after the startup, you say, okay, double check everything, <laughs> all the way, all the way around. Um, we do have, we do have some, um, you know, more automated kind of error mitigation things, alarms and things to tell us that something needs attention or, or, or so on. And, and we continue to try to incorporate those whenever a mistake is made. Well, and I mean, yeah, such as life mistakes are made. Hopefully they're not big expensive mistakes like shutting down an assembly line for a long time or dumping a barrel of, uh, of whiskey. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, what you deal with in healthcare, I tell people in healthcare, I said, you, you're, if somebody makes mistakes, your consequences are huge. I mean, that situation at Toyota roughly was about $8.3 million uh, loss, but a loss of a life is worse, you know, and, and the, the consequences are more severe and in those cases, you have to be even more diligent about about applying some thinking to to minimize the possibility of mistakes to, to mitigate. And um, you know, it, it's it's part it is part of life. Unfortunately, it is part of being being human. And um, you know, we, we know we can look at all kinds of situations where there were redundancies in place, and the and the outcome still occurred. And um, I think you're, you hit it on the head. It's, it's, it's ineffective to, to punish somebody for failing because we all fail. Mm -hmm. Right now, with that being said, of course, we talk about this a lot and, and certainly people in the audience always raise their hand and say, well, sometimes people are responsible. Sometimes they need to be punished. Sometimes blah, blah, blah. I said, look, if, if, if I look at a person and they make some significant amount of mistakes more than somebody else, Okay, 
outside some normal range, then maybe that person isn't fit for the work that they're doing and maybe they need to do something else. Right? Uh, at Toyota, the, the idea was if, if you make a mistake or something, I'm going to ask you what you think about that and how you can minimize that and, and you know, what was going on in your head at the time and uh, what kind of things can we do to try to uh, minimize that from happening. You know, I had, had worked with one guy one time and, this was after Toyota when I was consulting as a manager. And he, he had this fundamental belief that if people had to fix their own mistakes, why they wouldn't make that mistake again. Mm. And I said, okay, they might not, but what about the next guy? What about the next person who comes into that position? Yeah. How's that thinking changing anything? All you're doing is saying, well, you fix your own mistakes. You won't do that again. I mean, it's, it's that sounds like the equivalent of putting a dog's nose down in uh, yeah. poop on the floor. Right. I don't know if that's really effective. No. You might feel like it's doing something. You might feel better, but no. Well, you see, and, and I'll come full circle, that those are the same kind of things that I had to adapt to and understand and come to terms with my own self. I mean, I certainly had those urges as well, you know, to, to punish or to, you know, retribution or some something. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's sort of embedded us in us. It's, it's around us. It's in our culture. It's, you know, arguably that blaming is human nature. Kind of. Yeah. I think you, so. you can go back to um, the story of uh, Coco who passed away, I think a year or two ago, there was a, a gorilla that trainers researchers yeah. taught American sign language. And there's a famous story about Coco where po- Coco had a real live pet kitten. Yeah loved it and took care of it. And there was some day when um, the hand, I don't know if the, the right word is, we'll say researchers came back in and there was a sink fixture that had been torn out of the wall. Well, there's only one explanation for what happened, I guess. And they asked Coco what happened. And the story goes that Coco said in sign language, cat did it. <laughs> and yeah. so, I mean, that's what I'm saying. There's, we're, there's somehow, we're somehow wired. It must be an evolutionary, yeah. evolutionary survival tool. If you can pin blame on someone else and somehow survive your, your genes carry forward. So, yeah, yeah I, yeah, I think you're right. But we do the best we can to create cultures where, you know, we're focused on, um, fixing the process instead of blaming people. And, and to me, that's one of the lessons that um, I'm fortunate to have learned from, you know, the former Toyota people I've worked with and been mentored by and through my own work and experience. But it's it like a lot of things, it's a hard habit to break. Yes. So, um, well, maybe I'm going to go pour some of your whiskey. That's a habit that uh, I think is, is one I'm not trying to break. Uh, it's a... <laughs> It's a good one. David's uh, products are, you know, produced at uh, Glens Creek Distillery, and the website there is glenscreekdistillery.com. Um, for people who are looking to possibly buy and uh, try your whiskeys, can you tell a little bit, tell people a little bit about the distribution and, and what parts of the country they might be able to find you? Well, first of all, don't blame me that we can't ship. Okay. I, I don't make the laws. I just yeah. have to follow the laws and people misunderstand those all the time. Um, but distribution is, you know, we're, we're small, but we're in four states, Kentucky, Tennessee, Wisconsin, and Michigan. 
and uh, I know it's not enough yet, and we get requests all of, uh, from people all over the place for them. We're doing the best we can. We've grown and, and we've expanded uh, production. And uh, we had, well, I guess we turned one happy mistake into something. We we uh, we ran out of rye uh, once, our one of our secondary grains, and uh, John asked the question, what would happen if we made 100% corn bourbon? Hmm. And uh, usually I say, I don't know. Let's see. Let's try. Let's do an experiment. Yeah. So we have a, a currently a, a what we call Cobb corn only bourbon that, that is aging. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to release that shortly, but born out of a kind of a kind of a mistake. Oh, interesting. So when things get back to normal and when I'm in that part of the country, I'm going to come see you again and uh, hopefully get to pick some of that up and try it. Yeah. And I'm glad that. Uh, Jim Murray really liked in particular, I think, you know, uh, my, my favorite of, of your whiskeys is the Cafe Olay product. Now, that was intentional. That was not a mistake, right? Correct. Yeah, that was yeah. intentional. Yeah, uh, it, it turned out great. So, um, well, our, our guest, I think this episode's turned out great. So thank you for that, David. Our guest thank has you. been um, David Meyer, his uh, books, um, which I, I really like a lot as well, the Toyota Way Field Book and um, the other book, Toyota Talent, um, co-authored with Jeffrey Liker. And again, it's Glens Creek Distillery. So someone could combine the two, pour, do a pour of whiskey, sit down with a book next to the fire, read and learn and uh, have a sip and reflect. So David, thank you for kind of helping us combine those worlds a little bit in the discussion here today. All right, Mark. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to David Meyer for being our guest today. To learn more about him, about his distillery and his books and more, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake94. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.